Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. more things didn't change this weekend in the Premier League, the more they stayed the same. With Manchester City continuing their perfect, dominant, inspired start with a convincing display at Goodison Park. Manchester United possessed their way to another underwhelming result while there are still more questions and answers with Chelsea, even if the holders are into the win column. Welcome everybody to this edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. It was another active, exciting, event-filled. Let's go with event-filled weekend in the Premier League. So much excitement that we plan to take a few water breaks of our own during the show. But before I exhaust myself with this intro, let me bring in my co-hosts, Kartik Krishnayer and Lawrence McKenna. Lawrence, let's start with you. I want to know if you were lucky enough to be at one of these fine Premier League venues as they were booing water breaks. Uh, no, I was not at one of these fine Premier League venues. I decided to watch around London this weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, do you choose a pub in Greenwich? Uh, do you choose uh, another beautiful place? Just do outside, they have pubs just in Greenwich? Uh, Richard, I mean, you know this. They I have do pubs know this. I do know this. Um, yeah, don't ask stupid questions. Um, I'm an and, American. Uh, I'm, I'm obligated to. We all know that you took a walk to the pubs in Greenwich. Um, Got a good story out of it, too. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, but but then uh, that's the interesting thing is is if you go to uh, one of the grounds, I actually think there's not as good an atmosphere as if you go to a pub. Sometimes Kartik knows this as well, and I think uh, correct. You know, it's, it's down. It's it's partly down to uh, the 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 club that you choose to go to. The only place that I feel I can get anything near maybe what I'm imagining I want to get to when I get to a football ground is Crystal Palace, and I've said that season after season. Mm-hmm. How is it that I knew you were going to say that? And you're not the only one who says that. When The Guardian did their uh, fan review last year with fans from other clubs, which ground do you like traveling to? Selhurst. Which fans were the best when they traveled? Oh, Crystal Palace. It's like yeah. basically 15 of the 20 club uh, fan reps said this. And it's also, it's, it's straight off the top of your head. And, and it's, I guess that's, that's part of it is that it's, um, we, you know, I mean, obviously I couldn't go and see Chelsea this weekend. That was in the Midlands. Uh, you know, there's, there's lots of different... Uh, iterations of where I could have gone, but the the best place to go is Selhurst every weekend. I guess I would question that and say that it might be worth a lot of people's time if they're going to London to just skip the Premier League entirely and go out to the Valley and watch uh, second division football with Charlton. Yeah, I I enjoyed that experience uh, much more just because it was it was much more convivial and less expensive. Really, there there is also a new kind of football. Of conversation I've had with quite a few people is in East Dulwich. There is a, a football club popping up around there, and um, that's a, a, a quite a middle class area, quite 
uh, wealthy, but also a real mixture of people because of the gentrification that's going on in the area at the moment. And so you've got fans that coming from Millwall, coming from Charlton, coming from the other side of the river as well, all coming together and sharing a different kind of experience. So that isn't like, you know, it's almost like, I mean, it's, it's a weird experience because it almost feels like the experiences that I was having in America with people where people were discovering that there was other people who liked football. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Other people outside of just their friend, uh, their, their set of friends that they had. So it's a, it, there's a new de- newly developing culture in England as well. It's not just this sort of set green street esque uh, portrayal that often goes on week to week. Hmm. Okay. A Premier League review show. Slam the Premier League for five minutes. Check. Let's talk about these Welcome water. The breaks. Guardian. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Let's talk about these water breaks, guys, very briefly because we saw water breaks in two matches. Was it this weekend? And... It's freaking hot, Richard. I'm here. It's hot. All right. I needed a water break. I wasn't playing football. We don't need to talk any more about it. Karchik, your thoughts on the booing we heard during the breaks, though? I think it's ridiculous. I mean, this is, again, there, there seems to be this this need to have this, quote, manliness in English football culture. We've talked about this before, Richard, year, for years and years and years on this show and in other venues where you and I have interacted and worked together. Uh, this It's player safety. It's, it's an issue of uh, making sure guys who are running for 90 minutes and uh, are covering incre- an incredible amount of ground are properly hydrated. And it's as simple as that. I, I can't – I was – you know what? I'm saying I was stunned, and I was stunned because that was the reaction when I'm watching Western Spurs and I hear the booing. Uh, but then I think about it, and it kind of fits some of the caricatures of English fans. One of the most entertaining matches of the weekend, Bournemouth's 4-3 victory at Upton Park. Prominent booing during breaks during that match, and ultimately I don't remember the booing or the breaks. I just remember the goals and a really terrible first half from West Ham, but we'll talk about that later in the show. We had a couple of other uh, introductions this weekend in the Premier League. A number of players making debuts for clubs this weekend, even though we'll probably see more next weekend after the transfer window closes, but I want to go through a couple of them. Karchik, I want to start with you. We saw Zerdin Shakiri for Stoke, probably one one of the more hyped transfers of the last couple of weeks, at least, partly because of his talent level, the clubs he's been with, and the impact he could potentially have with Stoke. Decent game, quiet. He did assist on the Stoke goal. Uh, what did you think of him? He, he had that, that really nice setup uh, for Duf for the goal, uh, but kind of quiet, kind of finding his feet in English football. Uh, I, I think uh, it's been a whirlwind for him to go from Bayern, uh, very surprisingly. I mean, he's a player that was, uh, was fast-tracked for stardom under Jan Pikens. It doesn't really fit what Pep Guardiola wanted. He, uh, Guardiola brought in guys like Tego Alcantara and, and some other midfielders. Uh, goes to Inter at the middle, in the middle of last season, and Inter was a disaster. So I think it's been a whirlwind for him. Then it appears he's going to sign with Stoke at the beginning of the transfer window. Does not and then comes back to Stoke a month later. So um, it, it's just it's been a weird eight months for uh, for Shakiri, this player who who started the Champions League final, a winning Champions League final for Bayern not so long ago, uh, two and a half years ago or so. So uh, I, I think he'll find his feet, but he's not there yet. Lawrence, it's, we it's have... strange because, the, sorry, the perception of him in, in, in England is a money grabber um, <laughs> and one that most people are sort of reverting to. So it's quite interesting. Maybe we should just stop worrying about money. We say a lot of dumb things when we focus on money. Uh, at best, at best, ill-informed things. Uh, Lawrence, there were a number of other players. Uh, Thalvan for Newcastle. Sacco, very influential for Crystal Palace. We saw Gokan Inler for Leicester. Serge Gnabry making his debut for West Brom. Excited about <laughs> any of these players? Um, I felt very excited about um, Nabry because I've seen Nabry play before. Um, and I, I, I know there was something about... Uh, 
something about him it just didn't seem to, to fit in the team and i'm sort of looking for the right team for him and i think this i think there's it. i think there's qualities there yeah this, you know, I, the level uh, at yeah. the field he wants to play out is totally packed at arsenal everybody talks about how arsenal has too many of these attacking midfielder types and so he's going to be able to slot in in a place where west brom's a little bit short on that Uh, but kartik we're underplaying probably the biggest acquisition of the week pedro stolen from manchester united not stolen uh chelsea just beat manchester united to the lease clause that was always there slept on it yes and kartik he he made an immediate impact today at the hawthorns Uh, give us your impressions of how you think pedro's going to fit with chelsea oh i think Chelsea are once again, well, I never removed them as favorites for the title, but signing them make them the favorites for the title, if there was any doubt about it. This is a player who's won three Champions Leagues, was prominent on two of those teams, and uh, I, I said this the other night on another show, I'm going to admit my own embarrassment in this, and people can turn off this podcast after this and say, you, you're, you're a knob. Well, Richard, don't hold this against Richard and Lawrence, because they're not knobs. I am. <laughs> I am the guy yes, in that's a true. press box. At a game here in the United States a few years ago when Neymar side with Barcelona that told uh, some assembled Latin journalists, many of them Brazilian, that I didn't know that Neymar could get into the Barcelona team for six, six to nine months because Pedro was that good. And, and you, know, you can't you can't sit Pedro. He's that good. So that's my opinion of the player. Because he just fit that role on Barcelona, and I thought he was a perfect player for Barcelona. Yes, I can see two plus years later, Neymar was an upgrade, but Neymar would be an upgrade over any. I wasn't. I wasn't knocking Neymar. I was just saying Pedro is that good. That's how much I, I, um, I feel how strongly I feel about this player. And uh, maybe it was the Barcelona system, right? He comes to Chelsea uh, this week, fits right in. Same type of things he did at Barcelona: setting players up, pushing into wide areas, making deceptive runs. Uh, very good with the ball at his feet. Uh, he is a game changer. So was, great signing for Chelsea. He was often referred to as a good luck charm at Barcelona. He won 20 major honors in seven seasons at Barcelona. Wow. Just an incredible wow. number. Uh, Lawrence, I want to talk to you about the reverse angle of this. It is a bit telling that Manchester United let Pedro slip through their fingers on this one, seemingly having worked for that transfer for so long. But it, it yeah. seems to fit a pattern. It took them so long to get Ander Herrera out of Spain. They obviously slipped and fell on their face on the Cesc Fabregas thing. Do we learn a little bit more about Ed Woodward through this another miss? Um, I mean, that that's part of it, isn't it? Is that I'm, I'm wondering what United are trying to build through that. The, the, the frustration is at the moment that when you look at the starters for Manchester United, such as Wayne Rooney, who's on such an exorbitant amount of money, sorry, I've gone back to the money again, and then you think the value that they could get somewhere else, um, you wonder why Manchester United are letting those people sort of, whether the way they're building is the way they want to go and whether there's a bit of disjunction between what Lou Van Gaal currently wants and what Manchester United want. And maybe there's a similar situation. I, I don't know if this is true, but a similar situation to the one we saw a few years ago between Rick Parry and Rafa Benitez, hmm. where there was a bit of disjunction hmm. at the club um, between the guy who was making the actual buying and maybe slowing down some of those things or trying to get better value or whatever it was. And the guy who was saying, I need to field this team and make them successful. Well, this is the second manager, permanent manager that Edward Ward has worked with since taking over at Manchester United. He had some notable slips during the David Moyes era, too. Leighton Baines still isn't a Manchester United player. Uh, we'll have plenty of time to talk about this. We'll have time to talk about Pedro's fit at the Hawthorns this weekend as Chelsea finally broke into the win column. But first, let's get everybody up to date on this weekend's results. On Saturday, Manchester United's attack came alive in every facet except for the one that counts. 20 shots, no goals for Louis van Gaal's men, as Newcastle earned a nil nil draw at Old Trafford. First half goals from Mommy Biram Doof and Russell Martin gave way to an hour of scoreless soccer as Stoke got a 1-1 draw at Norwich. 
Swansea gave up a 1-0 lead at the Stadium of Light with Sunderland earning their first point of the season with a 1-1 draw. Bournemouth took a 2-0 lead at West Ham, saw the Hammers come back, but eventually came a four, claimed a 4-3 victory at the bowling ground thanks to a hat-trick from Callum Wilson. Three goals from Crystal Palace, one of which ended up in Aston Villa's nets, gave, gave the Eagles a 2-1 win at Selhurst Park, while Leicester were handed their first blemish of the season with a 1-1 draw with visiting Tottenham. On Sunday, Chelsea jumped out to an early lead, gave West Brom a man advantage, but ultimately leaned on James Morrison's early missed penalty kick in their 3-2 win at West Brom. Watford made it three draws in three matches with a nil-nil against visiting Southampton, and Manchester City, with their third straight impressive performance, earned a 2-0 win at Everton. With three rounds almost in the books, Manchester City is two points clear at the top of the table for now. Leicester and Manchester United are close behind on seven, while Palace and Liverpool's two wins keep them within reach of City. Tomorrow's big game, Liverpool's visit to the Emirates to face Arsenal, will be in focus later in the show, but when we come back, we'll be talking more about Sunday's match at Goodison as well as Chelsea and Manchester United's weekend's results. But first, gentlemen, let's pause for a second. Let's get a word in from our sponsor. Three weeks of the season are in the can, and the Premier League is already living up to expectation. But to keep that excitement going, I want to invite all you listeners to check out Rabble.tv for a new type of TV experience. Rabble.tv is a place to listen to live matches from real fans while games are being played, and the way it works is simple. All you have to do is tune into your game, but press the mute button, and then head over to Rabble.tv to listen to soccer fans providing their own call. Or better yet, you can create your own broadcast. Call one of your team's games just by signing up for free and switching on your mic. With Rabble, you can listen to a broadcast on your desktop or through your iOS app, and now you can also listen through your mobile browser. And all you have to do is sign up today at Rabble.tv, where it's your team, and it's your call. Well, Kartik, we normally take a little break here to start the second segment of the show, but you have a little experience with Rabble TV that might be relevant to talk about here in the show that you have every week on the World Soccer Talk Network. Yeah, thanks for that, Richard. Uh, Divers and Cheats is uh, a new show on Rabble.tv. We've done three three episodes. It's every Thursday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 p.m. British Standard Time, and 3 p.m. Pacific Time. Uh, it's a live show. Uh, you can get it through our iTunes stream. Uh, we had a little issue with that the first couple of weeks, but now that's fixed. And uh, last week we talked about the transfer window. The previous week we had talked about the Confederations Cup and the current state of the U.S. national team. And in week one we talked about Major League Soccer as a destination for top American players and, and, and whether that uh, helps or hurts the U.S. national team. So uh, we're going to take a topic every week. We're going to break it down. Uh, some weeks I'll have a guest. I'll have both of you guys on uh, soon, hopefully. Uh, some you. weeks I don't have a guest, and, and we just uh, interact with Twitter, and, and we do this live, and people on Twitter are tweeting at me or uh, leaving comments on Ravel.tv. You can leave comments on any Ravel.tv broadcast. Um, Today, in fact, uh, for Everton Man City, we did a World Soccer Talk uh, talkcast or Rabblecast during uh, Rabble.tv, and we had a bunch of comments uh, commenting on the game. So it's a, it's a new way to interact uh, and a new way to watch sports. Hmm. Well, that's every Thursday. Kartik is going to have that show. There'll be more weekend broadcasts, and that's Rabble.tv. Sounds, uh, sounds like an interesting way to integrate SoundCloud's functionality with all the other stuff that's going on and, of course, the live broadcasts. Um, but let's get to one of those live broadcasts this weekend. Let's talk about one of the Sunday matches. I think after Everton's really impressive display last weekend on the South Coast against Southampton, we all circled Manchester City's visit to Goodison Park as the match of the weekend. Lawrence, I don't want to say it didn't live up to expectations because I think a lot of our expectations were that Manchester City would continue to be impressive. But was mm. this 2 nothing win for City, was this more about City continuing to be domineering or Everton reverting back to their uh, their first weekend's form? I mean, yeah, um, the contrast of the two, City's 
uh, lineup and the way they play, I think in many ways was always going to negate the way that Everton want to play. And I think that's part of the problem was that they, it, Lukaku was talking about being strong enough for all these guys. But, you know, if you come in one on one against someone else, which is what Everton were doing the previous week, then that's fine. But if you're coming up against a solid defensive unit like City have displayed early on, at least in this season, then you're going to have, have problems. And I think Everton just looked completely negated by that, stretched by the pace that City now exhibit out on the wings and really unable to compete with some of the um, technical skill and defending and shielding of the ball that City looked able to do in the centre. So overall, it, it didn't play to Everton's strengths. I think we questioned that in previous weeks is, you know, are they going to face sides who just know how to negate them or are playing a system which is just not going to work against them? Um, and, and that's that's going to be the bigger question for Everton this season. With regard to City, I was asked a question earlier tonight. How do you take someone like David Silver out the game? Did you have an answer for it? Because I don't think anybody in the Premier League seems to have an answer right now. We we slightly, but I mean, we played around with what we could do. And one of the answers was, you know, do you cut off his supply from behind? Or do you cut off who he supplies to? Or do you man-mark him, try and man-mark him out the game? Uh, putting someone like a... You know, a, a faster version of Lucas Laver on him or mm-hmm. a, um, a Daily Blint or someone like that. But then we said there's not really that many people who have the uh, the formation to be able to do that, especially considering how much David Silva roams and then also have the, the intelligence of a player who's able to do that. Or do you share it out and almost Lionel Messi him um, and, you know, foul him throughout the game to sort of keep him out of it? But that... It's a dangerous game to play, especially considering that that opens up space for the likes of Sterling. So it looks as if, you know, City have hit upon a system and almost a dream team-esque kind of shape. And if you get someone like Kevin De Bruyne in there, then yeah, for me, that, that it's pr- pretty much a perfect, perfect and balanced side. I mean, I don't know what you think, Karthik, but it, 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 it look, they're beautiful right now. That second goal was, you know, it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, um, Kartik, a couple things to add to Lawrence, and then I want to get your thoughts on just the matchup that Lawrence described so well. You know, when I looked at the heat maps after the game, one thing that I thought was very interesting was whereas Everton over the first two games, Gareth Barry's average position was well behind McCarthy's average position. But today, they both were very high up at about 20 yards in front of their central defenders, right in the space that you would actually want to add an extra man uh, that David Silva is going to dominate. And so maybe that was something in the execution that went wrong. But I think Lawrence did a really good um, job of describing the advantage that City had. Why? Because so often today we saw Jesus Navas and Raheem Sterling put in dangerous positions. Sterling assisted on the first goal. And then even after Nasri come in, being able to score from a wide position. Uh, tell us what your general impressions of just the matchup between these two teams. Because as Lawrence is pointing out, it seemed as the game played out to heavily favor Manchester City. Yeah, this is a major reversal the last couple of years of this this series. Roberto Mancini managed eight times against Everton, the previous Manchester City manager. All eight were against the previous Everton manager, uh, David Moyes. He won one, he drew one, he lost six. And that, wow. that included a season which Manchester City won the title and a season where they finished second in the league. So uh, that's that's pretty striking. Manuel Pellegrini, five games against Everton, all against Roberto Martinez, who likes to play a little more open. Four wins, one draw. So that's uh, it's a complete change in, in this in this series. This used to be the the bogey fixture, the most difficult fixture on Manchester City's uh, uh, fixture list, bar none. Uh, that includes trips to Chelsea, trips to Manchester United, trips to Arsenal. This used to be the most difficult game. It is not anymore. And um, I think that speaks a little bit about Martinez and the way he sets up Everton, right? I mean, you, you just nailed it with the heat map. Hmm. The fact that he had Barry playing so far up the pitch and uh, no and no cover, really. There's no cover for that back four. And they're, and they're 
getting pulled in apart and they're getting pushed into wide areas. John Stones is getting pushed uh, wide uh, toward the right of their defense because of Ron. Raheem Sterling's uh, movement, uh, that's leaving Silva with space to roam. Same thing on the other side with uh, uh, whoever their left back was. Obviously, they played two, two of them today, and Leighton Gaines is injured, and Brian Oviedo was injured. So they had mm-hmm. um, they had two young left backs, both pulled out of position by Navas, again, creating space for, for Silva. The side looks perfectly balanced now, and I know, Amazing. know uh, it's early, and I know there are injuries. I know there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, hurdles going going forward. But I wonder about bringing Kevin De Bruyne in because it just seems the chemistry, particularly between Alexander Kolarov, uh, Raheem Sterling, and David Silva, is so good right now. The triangles, the movement, uh, the, the spacing that you bring another attacking player in into that element after this chemistry is already developed. Does that Take, does that disrupt the flow? Would you mess with it, Lawrence? Uh, I, I, I think at some point you're going to have to, just uh, for sheer fitness factor. And so that's why I'm saying if we bring in a De Bruyne, in De Bruyne, De Bruyne, De, someone else said De Bruyne. Uh, Ooh, don't De go Brown. with that one. <laughs> um, Boston Bruins. And then there was, uh, you're going to have to switch it up at UCLA some point. You know, um, yeah, but you're going to have to uh, switch it up at some point. So um, mm-hmm. it, it makes sense to give yourself that option because I, I think De, De Bruyne and Silver are two different players, obviously right. being yeah. two different human beings. But you know, <laughs> the, the, the point there would be that they offer different things for, for the striker that also sits just ahead of them. And you wonder, I, I don't know, what makes me really excited is how well someone like Sterling would play with a De Bruyne. Mm-hmm. Someone like Aguero would play with a De Bruyne. Because... Sterling fed off the likes of Coutinho and Suarez at Liverpool, and they were two intelligent players who, you know, brought the best out of him. And now that Sterling looks to be sort of taking that st- step on himself, I wonder, you know, what he can do with another young, hungry guy there. Manuel Pellegrini said after this game, uh, he started his post-game comments talking about Sterling before he got into the game. He said, this is exactly why we signed him. He was the type of player we didn't have. Last season, which is why all summer long, while people are saying, oh, my goodness, Manchester City is really going to overpay for this 20 year old. I said, this is a player we have to have. I don't care if we have to pay as a City fan. We don't care. I don't care if we have to pay 75 million for him. There is only one guy who's in English football. Maybe there are guys on the continent. There's only one guy who's English who fits that homegrown requirement, who plays in England currently that can do the things he can do. And it's him. So unfortunately, Liverpool has us by the proverbial, you know what? We're going to have to pay whatever they want us to pay them, but we need the guy. That, that's a game changer. And guess what? Three games since the season, it's been a major game changer. As you said, the balance on the side is just incredible. Um, and it's enviable. I think other teams are trying to get to that level, and maybe we're judging other teams based on a Manchester City Manchester City's form, which probably isn't realistic to expect at this point in the season. Uh, I think the obvious counterpoint to that is Chelsea, although Chelsea had a pretty good weekend. They had a 2 to nothing victory at Arsenal. They moved into first place in the Super League. They're closing in on the League Cup double. Emma Hayes is doing great stuff with that squad. Oh, wait, we're talking about the men's Chelsea team. Well, I just wanted to get that in there, that uh, Chelsea's women's team yeah. is doing remarkable things in the Super League right now. Uh, Although City is not is not far behind them in the Super League. Let's not forget that. City, Sunderland, the the win over Arsenal was a big one because Arsenal was also a contender there too. Yes. Um, unfortunately, there, there are still some more questions with the men's side of the Chelsea uh, establishment. A 3-2 victory, much needed. We saw Mourinho's reaction after the game. He said his team played incredibly. Uh, kept repeating that in the post-match interviews. Lawrence, I I don't know if anybody else was really that excited about the Chelsea performance, but they really were in a situation <laughs> where the bottom line needed to be addressed. Four points through three games, they're finally into the win column. Yeah, uh, yeah. What did Chelsea not have before this? Did a triangle do three points? Um, I guess. Ba-dum-bum. 
Yeah, th- that's the thing, isn't it? Is is that Chelsea got this, and it's in that position of di- adversity that Mourinho loves so much, isn't it? He had his captain sent off, and you know it was proving so many other things for him. I think uh, the, the he he was also very prickly in making the point when someone said to him, "How are you going to do it from here?" and he sort of said, "I've done it before. I'll do it again." Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think for that reason, it it it, do- it is people sort of grabbing it straws but i think Mourinho is almost indulging them in that and trying to encourage people to do that because he wants them to write him off uh, kartik what's your impression of the performance i thought it was definitely a, a big step forward over uh the manchester city result and also it was hard to read chelsea based on the first weekend of the season where courtois got a red card so early but then again in this one at a very similar time in the game they had a man sent off diego costa uh, possibly could have gotten red card in this one we saw nemanja matic with a couple of sloppy tackles including conceding a penalty kick chelsea just seems to be making these isolated mistakes that they just were not making not even last year over the last two years yeah matic is and i talked about this on the rabblecast with chris Matic in particular is concerning. I, I don't think Zuma had a particularly good game either, but uh, I've already talked about why I think Chelsea's really good going forward uh, in the Pedro segment, so we don't need to talk about that now. Let's address what's going on in midfield and, and toward the back. I, I think JT now is in, obviously he, he's on the back end of his career, but I think he's also uh, not looking good because of the uh, kind of central defense partners he's had these first couple of weeks. Uh, Cahill was making mistake after mistake. In the Man City game today, Zuma was out of position. Matic is not provided an effective shield. Does that mean you play Mikel instead of Matic? You lose so much going forward, right? And so much with the interplay if you make that change. But Matic, I, I think, has had three poor games in a row, quite mm-hmm. honestly. And that's at, at this level in the Premier League when you're chasing a title. Uh, it's tough to stay in a team when you play three bad games in a row. There are very few guys in the City, Chelsea, Arsenal, uh, Manchester United team, those four, those th- four teams that would stay in a team playing as poorly as Matic has played. Uh, maybe they should have gone and signed Alex Song. I, I don't know. He signed, he signed with West Ham. Uh, maybe that's a guy that could have helped them with his experience in the league uh, uh, playing as that shield. Uh, there's something, I think, if they get the Matic and Fabregas situation fixed, in central midfield, then they can push on. They've got so many problems at the back, but I think a lot of their problems at the back are starting because Fabregas is giving the ball away or not linking up well with the the, the attacking players and Matic is getting run over. And then JT is playing with a a, a different central defense partner every week. So uh, let's let's see. But Matic, to me, is is a big standout. He he is not playing well at all. Speaking of JT, Lawrence, we can uh, hammer on a topic that you and I like to get into whenever possible. Uh, The media or other voices drawing hasty conclusions. I think one of the themes that came out of this week of analysis was the idea that John Terry is somehow finished, which just seems ridiculous to me based on the information that we have right now. But based on the information we have right now, we might want to ask, what are Chelsea's options? How much does John Terry fit into them? They obviously have three central defenders that Mourinho is comfortable playing. Well, at least three, if you could include John Terry in there. I still do based on last season. But between him, Cahill, and Zuma, uh, what do you think the future of Chelsea's central defense looks like? John Stones. Um, It's it's, it's shape in a certain way which uh, uh, Robbie Savage made the point this morning on Five Live that um, it's it's interesting to have uh, Cahill in there but then you need someone alongside him who is more in the John Terry mould and who do you get in that and that's why most people are shaping up the likes of John Stones to go alongside him because people seem to see John Terry weirdly as the classy one there Um, uh, and in in a footballing sense he probably is Um, 
And so I, th- I think what people are looking for is someone who's intelligent and Zuma doesn't represent that for a lot of people, mm-hmm. maybe reductively because I think he's still very young. Yeah. Um, and I, I also feel that there's a slight sort of assumption of because of where Zuma's come from, all those kind of things people seem to take away from him. He's going to need more time to be able to bet in. They're going to have to play him pretty much there in the next game. What I would like to see is, is Mourinho going to change the right back position, which would make sense, put Ivanovic centrally and put yes. a central defensive uh, pair of Ivanovic and Cahill in yes. the next game. Yes, yes, yes. I was just going to make that point, Lawrence. I think that's what yeah. happens with uh, Raman having been signed from Augsburg, play him at left back, move Asapolo Quetta to right back, move Ivanovic inside get through the next game with uh, Ivanovic paired with Cahill or Zuma. I, I don't know what's happened to Gary Cahill because I thought he had an excellent season last year. And, of course, uh, I, I hate to bring international play into this, but has been one of the few really consistent performers for England over the course of the last uh, 18 months or so. So I, uh, I'm not quite sure uh, what's going on, but he, he, has, he has played very poorly. this Gentlemen, the other title contender in action this weekend, Manchester United. Uh, Lawrence, it just seemed like more of the same for Manchester United. If if a little better uh, going forward, even if the scoreline... More shots. More, more shots, more quality chances. Tim Krul actually had to have a very good game, whereas I'm not sure the previous two keepers uh, in the Premier League games had to have a good game. But coming off of their midweek display against Club Bruges, where they scored three times and Memphis had a breakout game, it was a little concerning to see them go back into this uh, pattern, so to speak, where we're waiting for Wayne Rooney to wake up and we're waiting for Memphis to have an impact in the Premier League. Yeah, people are talking about Wayne Rooney as a, a streaky striker, um, and I'm probably going to agree with that. I also think that people are talking about, uh, weirdly talking about Manchester United as if they exist in two parallel universes in the Champions League and in the Premier League. Um, but you, they're onto something. I just don't quite think it fits yet mm-hmm. um, because it, it, the point would be that, you know, uh, essentially... Uh, Van Gaal knows how to play a different kind of football in those competitions and doesn't necessarily know how to do that in the Premier League yet. Um, what's weird is they've not conceded any goals, at least, which is fantastic. And people can sing all about that as much as they like. This is not exciting football. Um, and after the money that they've they've spent and the way that they've uh, spoken about the team and the way that people seem to have an identity built around this side, I, it's, I think it'll come, but I... I do think there are a lot of sort of outside blows, if you like, going on at Manchester United right now. And people are really trying to put the boot in while they look down. Um, you know, the Pedro thing, the Otamendi. I mean, the Otamendi thing must have stunned a little that, bit. Right. The United fans. Um, and then people today, for some reason, talking about Neymar, which yeah, is just, for me seems, is just weird. I wasn't even going to bring that up on the show. It's too unjustifiable to really bring and, up. And Thomas Muller, Muller. I mean, come on. I mean, well, at least just, that one uh, seemed to actually be a legitimate connection, even if it but, didn't seem like it was ever going to happen. Oh, because of Van Hal, right, right. What, what, what's frustrating for me is, is that all the time people seem to be onto something here, but they just seem to go on the surface level of it and don't seem to dig any deeper. Mm-hmm. The point maybe they're making there is that if you were to go down the Germany route and have a series of number 10s, essentially, for goals for Manchester United, that might be, that's going to make them a very exciting side that maybe fits the Van Gaal um, system. Um, do, do you go down that route? Or, you know, do you look for a recognised striker? Because the problem is there's not been anyone that's won the Premier League over the last few years without a recognised striker there, or at least maybe two recognised strikers. At the moment, United only really have Chicharito as one recognised striker. Rooney yeah. almost doesn't really count as that because he's such a, he look or appears to be such a versatile player. And at the moment, he's definitely not justifying 
the wages that they seem to be uh, that they seem to justify for him. I was having the conversation with the United fan earlier today. They were saying, "I would much rather we just let him go." Yeah, well, plus he fits well, well, into that problem well, that you just identified of having a bunch of number 10s that you're trying to scatter around into different positions. I think we probably need to get over this goal that Rooney and Van Hall have to recreate his career as a nine. I think that's over. Kartik, I do want to get your thoughts on this, but I, I want to point out something that I think subtly worked into Steve McLaren's favor here. Um, Daryl Janmott got red carded, somewhat embarrassingly so, last weekend. And so normal starting right back for Newcastle, he was out. Manchester United, ever since Depay moved over to the left, and they have Luke Song on that wing have been one of the most left-leaning wings in the left-leaning teams in the league and moving the new acquisition Chancel Mbemba out to right back getting a more defensive player out there to deal with that build-up down the left even if you look at where Schweinsteiger was playing this weekend very left-leaning to help that build-up I think that perhaps unconsciously but I also want to give Steve McLaren credit I think that was a key to this game moving one of their already one of their best defensive players out to right back to deal with Depay's threat I think that's a big reason why uh, Newcastle got out of Old Trafford with a point. But just more generally, I just want to get your thoughts on the state of Manchester United and where you think they should be, what you think they should be doing in these next crucial days, because given the quality of the Premier League, I'm not sure that they can just wait until January to discover where they need to address issues. Yeah, I I, uh, I, I think they've got the one striker in Chicharito. Last year, they were able to get away at times in the season and get into fourth place uh, by Throwing uh, Marwan Fellaini into these very advanced positions late in matches. We saw him get a goal in the Champions League midweek. Similarly, right right at the end of the game, right right before the final whistle. Throwing him in an advanced position. Throwing Ashley Young on the pitch and letting him run at people. And then uh, letting Mata do what Mata does. Uh, That that flair, that creativity, that seems to be gone. Because what happened last season was Manchester United was chasing fourth. Louis Van Hall had to get into those Champions League positions. He was willing to, 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 to kind of take a flyer on some of these guys that he had inherited. Like Mata, Mata and Fellaini were Moyes boys. Buys, Young has been with the club since 2011. And it worked. Now, this year, it seems like he's trying too hard because there's this, this thought process that they have to be a title contender. So he brings in Schneiderlin. He brings in Schweinstager. Nothing spectacular yet from those guys. Memphis has become kind of the focal point of, the, of their attack, which, which leans the entire team left. They're very imbalanced, as you, as you mentioned, symmetrically. And it, it just seems like Von Hall has lost a little bit of his adventurism, even with the squad he has. Does that Do you think he trusts them? He <laughs> may not, but, but, but somehow those guys got, got him through last season. Ashley Young, without Ashley Young, they don't finish fourth last season, mm-hmm. full stop. Believe it or not, I'm, we're, we're, I know we're talking about Ashley Young. We're not talking about some high-priced player. But Well, actually, I guess he is a high-priced player yep. because he's English. But... Um, but this year, it's it's kind of back to Rooney up front, which isn't going to work. Uh, and remember, they had to manufacture goals last year because Robin Van Persie and Falcao were not scoring goals. They're strikers. Um, Van Persie especially was terrible last season. So they, they found ways to manufacture uh, uh, chances. Uh, and Juan Mata, as I mentioned, was instrumental in that. And I thought with Di Maria gone, Mata was going to rampant this season. We haven't seen it in these first three games. Um, and again, because Mata's cutting in from the right, and the play is all on the left. So, uh, yeah, they have to sign someone, Richard. I, I don't, I don't have names for you. I don't, I don't know who's going to help this team at this point. But they, they've got problems mm-hmm. uh, if they want to contend for a title. Now, if they're satisfied finishing fourth and they feel they can hold off Liverpool and they feel like Spurs have gotten off to a poor start and and maybe they're 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 not uh, as good as I thought they were going to be, then um, then maybe they're fine if if, if uh, that's the uh, requirement, finishing fourth. But if uh, they really want to push on. 
as I know United fans believe they should, then uh, they're going to have to make a move in the next week. Nope. That's our weekly Manchester United confusion. Three weeks talking about the same thing. Check back next Sunday. We'll probably pick up the discussion. Uh, Seriously, are you a little bit frustrated with the analysis that we've just offered there? Because there's very little that we're... I mean, Kartik is the most incisive of the three comments we've just made. But my point is still... I mean, we're still very early. That's that's one thing I guess we need to acknowledge in the season. It's still very early, um, and United I mean, I'm not, are I'm not frustrated. We, we we can really only talk about what happens on the field, and I do think that we are evolving the conversation and we're making some conclusions. We're talking a little bit more here about Manchester United relying on certain people. Memphis, we weren't considering Memphis such a big focal point in the wane of Rooney's effectiveness. You know, if Manchester United continues to be this confused team, we're going to have to talk about them being this confused team going forward. And uh, as much as I'm frustrated with watching them every week, I'm not frustrated with how we're handling it. We can only talk about how they play. I agree. I, I guess what I'm what I'm looking for there is some sort of uh, I don't know, like a, uh, just, just something that's going to help help nail what's actually happening at United. Because at the moment, it seems a lot like oh, Ibubu was in Barcelona. Oh, he wasn't there for Pedro. He was there for Neymar. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, there's just very little actual analysis of the fact that this is a a big club that is not necessarily nailing it right now. Well, maybe right, we- right. And with De Gea, they haven't either. De Gea against uh, Sergio Romero, uh, a clean sheet. But De Gea, if they don't uh, sell him in the next week, he's going he's gonna to go on a free transfer. But maybe the analysis is really so simple that we don't need to harp on it. Wayne Rooney just needs to start playing to his salary, his position, to the chances that have been created by him. And he almost did this weekend. There was a very controversial off controversial offside call in the beginning of this game. But maybe to keep digging and digging is to overcomplicate it. They need people who will score goals. And when they got that midweek from Memphis, it was a Manchester United team that we expect to see every weekend. And when they didn't get it this weekend against a team that had a player that can close down that left side of the attack, then they had another result that looked similar to their first two results. I mean, we can keep trying to spin it, but I think that's also a flaw that a lot of people have is that they end up overanalyzing these little nuggets of a team when sometimes it is as simple as like, yeah, their most their most uh, their best compensated player needs to score goals. Going down the same, well, yeah, that's part of it. But going down the same path over and over again with analysis doesn't always work. And I think you, I, I consistently go back to this story in my head because at one point you said to me, you know, Liverpool aren't really all that, Lawrence. Like, you know, if, if you go to America, then there's people there who maybe buy into some of the, the mysticism. But if you didn't grow up with it, then you, La- you, last you don't buy into it. Yeah, that's a good point. Last point on this whole thing. They're an arrogant club. Uh, they're a club that sold Danny Welbeck, a player who I still believe could help him. I know he's not, he's not a world-class player, but a player that could still help him and who could score goals for them right now. They sold him to Arsenal, who are a better team than they are. Because uh, they don't view Arsenal as a threat, or I, I don't know. I mean, to me, that that when they did that 15 months ago, or however long ago it was, I, I was stunned. And I still think it's it's a Welbeck's hurt now, and he's getting injured a lot now that he's at Arsenal, like every other Arsenal player. But um, I, I still can't believe they sold Danny Welbeck. They, they may not be in this position if they hadn't sold him. Well, gentlemen, we are falling mm. into another cliche here of making this a Manchester United-centric show. So let's save some of this for next weekend when we'll have to confound a new way to talk about the same things. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll move on to the rest of the Premier League. So stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast.
Hey, welcome back to Manchester United Talk. I'm Richard Red Devil Farley here to talk for the next 30 minutes about what Manchester United is not doing well. Actually, we're going to move away from the Red Devils at this time. Uh, third segment of the show, we always talk about our players of the week. Uh, Kartik, let's start with you. I'm going to go with Mares, uh, who obviously has been much talked about these first couple of weeks of the season, but we haven't talked much about him on Leicester City. A player that looked very good for Nigel Pearson early last season, uh, even as they weren't getting results. And then uh, he went away to the Cup of African Nations with Algeria, came back, uh, lost his place, wasn't really the same player even uh, uh, until those last few weeks of the season. When he would play, he looked good, but everybody looked good on Leicester. This season, he started it with a bang. He's he's all virtually unplayable. If you're a left-back for uh, opposition for Leicester, and this week uh, it, we, we saw this uh, uh, with, with Spurs' back line, uh, he, he's, he's just taking players, uh, pulling them inside. Other guys are making runs off of him. So much of what Leicester has done these first three weeks, seven points, uh, has, has run through him. And he's a great finisher, too. So he's not, he's not only setting up his teammates, he's making the right runs. He's finishing well, and this finish this week to, to equalize against Spurs, was, uh, it, it was from a, a difficult angle, it was a great run, and it was a difficult, difficult finish. Well, this is our player of the week, but not necessarily the best player of the week. It could be our favorite player of the week. And I'm going to go with somebody that was overshadowed by a teammate who had a hat trick at Upton Park, and I'm going to go with Max Gradle. And I'm going to go, I feel a little bit weird about this, because I always feel that Gradle has been a slightly overhyped player, mostly because... The first impressions most people who follow the Premier League had of Gradle was being an over-talented player for a lower division of English football. And went to France, very much hyped, didn't have the impact there that maybe that hype would have corresponded to, although he was a very good player. And we've seen with the Ivory Coast how he's been somebody who has been useful, but not necessarily a dominant player. He's coming back to England, he's not expected to be a dominant player for Bournemouth, but this weekend he was a very crucial player. We saw him making an impact both wide and through the middle. We saw him draw the late penalty that allowed Callum Wilson to convert and post his first professional hat trick. And we just saw an influence at that middle level, taking the ball from the midfield into attack and really helping Bournemouth have a little bit more teeth than maybe they even had last year. If Max Gradle plays like this, I think Bournemouth might stay up. And this is coming from somebody who said Bournemouth was going to go down. So my player of the week is Max Gradle. Lawrence, how about you? I'm going to... Can I be any more cliched? Uh, I'm going to go for Sacco. Uh, if you want to debut for a side, then does he play for Crystal Palace game. or Liverpool? Because that's I know uh, where you're picking from those two pools. Yeah, right. Sorry, yeah, you're right. Having Liverpool not played this weekend, I think we can all safely assume that I'm going for the the, the latter there. Um, I'm going to go Sacco. I think you can have a dream debut. I think that uh, the way that Pardew is going with this side right now, I like what he's building. I'm waiting for the wheels to fall off, uh, but at the moment they aren't. And I think what he does perfectly is complement what. Crystal Palace are building right now, which is a spine of a team. Um, and I think he added real energy to the midfield, which is what Crystal Palace's midfield, as I've watched them more and more, um, are, are great for is uh, energy and closing things down and those kind of things, but also transitioning really well. And that's something that maybe they haven't done so well in recent years and there's been frustration. So I'm looking forward to seeing how he sort of aids this side in moving forward as well as sort of making them look more like a unit in midfield, which is... I mean, it sounds very vague. What I'm basically saying is... <laughs> it, does in, sound, in, it does sound a little cliche. The cliches are coming yeah, up here. But, but but what I'm saying is I, I like what he offers to the overall unit of Crystal Palace. And I think yeah. that that's what they've done very well this year is found players who look around them. Because it's fair to say that, you know, while Sacco and Balassi... Uh, sorry, uh, Zaha and Balassi are great players, there are times where 
they've not always had the end product. And I think what they've got now is they've got players who maybe may complement that. Yeah, that, yeah, it's interesting you bring those two up. We hear Belasi's name linked with Spurs. Zaha came off at halftime. And after uh, in the second half, uh, Sako had his debut goal for Palace. It'd be interesting if Pardew can add somebody that has a little bit more teeth and make a, a little bit more productive of those areas of the field that you just described. Exactly. Um, and and I, I, I guess I'm just... I, the thing with Pardew is I'm really worried that he's motivating this team through something that could burn out in the same way that he did at Newcastle. Mm-hmm. And we all predicted at Newcastle, look at this incredible side he's building. He's got Bar, he has Cissé, he has this, he has that. And then it, it sort of burned very brightly and then just suddenly went out. And I'm they were always they were always very streaky, right? They'd win. They'd, they'd have great stretches of, uh, of eight games and then have, have dead stretches. And it, it even happened uh, uh, last season, his last year at, at Newcastle. They're in the drop zone. Then there's about an eight or nine game stretch where they're very, very good. Uh, and then they, they, they fell off again and then he left. And it, it, it seemed to happen every season. I think the one difference here, and I think that is something I agree is in danger of happening, but the one difference here is that Crystal Palace have a couple of steps more to take in just upgrading their pure talent, and I think that might hold off burnout for a little bit, whereas in Newcastle, I think that their talent level was such they were already kind of pushing to the pushing to the max of the type of player they were going to be able to recruit. And I think Crystal Palace maybe has that extra 5 or 10% more turnover to go, which then at that point you might start the clock on Pardew. In fairness, the same way you would start the clock on almost any other non-Pellegrini Ancelotti coach. Well, yeah, but then uh, for me, it's also that uh, Pardew is, we all know, I mean, the, the assessment of Pardew in the media is he's an incredible ego. Um, and we all know that egos kind of ignite other egos around them. And I think that, you know, sometimes Brendan Rodgers is guilty of doing the same and essentially fell foul of his own ego lighting with what happened with um, with the young Sterling. Um, because he, you know, basically built him up to such a point that he almost thought, well, you know, screw you, I don't need you anymore. And I think he was right. Um, but and the similar thing is happening with Pardew, and I, I just worry because the problem with the ego is it's so fragile that if you dent it a little bit, that's where we're going to see the questions for Palace this season. Well, Palace got a 2-1 to victory over Aston Villa. Aston Villa's only goal uh, was an own goal. The only other goal this year was off of a corner kick, too. So they don't actually have a goal themselves from open play yet. And that's one of the big fears with Aston Villa this year, having lost Christian Benteke to Liverpool. Kartik, I want to stay in London right now. Bournemouth versus West Ham. We've talked about Max Gradle. We've talked a little bit about Callum Wilson. So I want to start this discussion with West Ham, who now have posted two disappointing disappointing results after winning at Arsenal. The Leicester result maybe wasn't so disappointing because we've seen quality from Leicester, but Bournemouth earned their first points in Premier League history uh, today, and they did it by scoring four goals. And no matter what you think of Bournemouth's quality and the style and the future of Eddie Howe, giving up four goals at home to anybody is a worrisome result. Yeah, and, and obviously they were torn apart of the first half against Leicester the previous week. Uh, it, it, there are there are some real warning signs, and there have been some real warning signs for West Ham in, in the preseason. Or actually, they didn't have a preseason, right? Those those were all competitive matches they faced uh, in Europa League. Then we kind of forgot about it because of that that re- remarkable opening day result against Arsenal, where they played well. Uh, Peter Cech made a couple mistakes, but they they, they, they got uh, they got the three points. Uh, but all these issues are, are, are in the open again. Uh, they're very they're very soft in midfield. They're very their spine is very poor. Uh, they they, uh, they once again. I mean, when I saw Kevin Nolan in the team sheet before the game 
uh, yesterday. I, oh I thought, God. my goodness, yeah, but, but uh, Eddie Howe's uh, team is going to is going to have a have a run out there because because we know how Eddie Howe's teams play anyway. We talked about it uh, over and over again that they're going to play. They have a lot of the ball. They have guys like Max Gradle who fits perfectly the Eddie Howe system and can run at people. And then you've got a player who's just not going to cover cover properly. It doesn't have mm-hmm. it doesn't have the pace. And uh, a guy like Mark Noble still in this team. I do think. And, and I and there were some issues last season, the second half of the year when he was on loan. But I do think getting Alex Song permanently is really going to help West Ham. Uh, he's still a very high level player, and we saw that for much of last season. Before I think he got into it with Big Sam, and Big Sam was on his way out, and Song thought, "Well, I'm going back to Barcelona anyway because they have a transfer ban, and uh, even though I want to stay in London, really." didn't want to leave Arsenal to begin with uh, type of thing. Uh, But I think getting Alex Song will help solidify that midfield. I I think uh, a guy that they had a couple of years ago who who they sold to Hull, Mo Diami, would be a player they could use right now. Or or maybe the loss of Stuart Downey is bigger than we thought. He had a great year last year. He had a great season. That's another another good point, Richard. So there are warning signs, uh, and Bilic is not really tested at this level he's not tested at the uh, big club level he's tested at the international level but it's completely different uh ball game and uh a lot of question marks about west ham but great result for for bournemouth uh, eddie howe they probably they deserved a result at, at anfield the week before i probably deserved a result against villa uh when they finally get their first three points in this game yeah maybe some of west ham's problems is tactical we've seen that billich has tried to maintain the diamond that they used last year and the diamond had those two fullbacks fully exposed in today's first half. So they switched to a 4-2-3 one at halftime, gave their fullbacks a little bit more cover, and maybe getting Paye out wide, one of their best players so far, but one of his strengths is definitely playing wider and being able to cross the ball in. Maybe that'll work a little bit better. We'll see. Something needs to change. Maybe it'll be the formation. Well, one thing I will point out is it's nice to see a goal from Maiga. He was a player that... Uh... Uh, that did never really perform the way I thought he would under Allardyce. He even loaned him out for yeah. half a year at Ar- one point. Archer so. Boric deserves a lot of credit for that goal. He yeah. seemed to react before the ball. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. Uh, Lawrence, let's move on to another game, a little bit more higher profile of a, a match because we had Leicester, one of the perfect teams coming into this weekend, hosting Tottenham, who have played well relatively, but also uh, definitely don't have the points haul that they would like because of that second half collapse last week against Spurs. Another draw. Um, are we going to look at this draw as a good result for Leicester or a missed opportunity? And then the same question for Tottenham. Um, what what it certainly shows is uh, it answers a question as to how uh, Ranieri is going to look to play some of the top sides this season. I mean, I think Spurs are still below that top four in the same way that Liverpool are, but I think it, it shows the adventurous nature of the way that he's going to play against them, the way that he's also very intelligently containing those sides um, and is very aware of the fact that Leicester are still very susceptible to uh, some of the mistakes that they made last season before they went on this incredible run. Um, and I think that in doing that, they have acquired some more players within there. I mean, it just in the first, if you can sub off drink water for Inla, just think about that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, who who knows how long it'll be ha- happening. But there is some discussion of Inler being this year's Cambiasso, and although they're very different types of players, maybe it's that injunction of strength that'll get them to the uh, to to stability. But Kartik, the one thing about Leicester that jumps out at me is that maybe teams just aren't really prepared for how Ranieri wants them to be playing. Uh, Leicester is a team that they're they're sitting back. They are, um, when they do have possession, they're moving quickly. They're not really too concerned about whether the ball is, the game is being played in their half as much as uh, 
or too much as other teams might be, um, they're very comfortable, it seems like, not only letting the other team have the ball, but losing that territorial battle because they know they can make up that space very quickly. And Kartik, I just wonder if, if teams are just going to eventually figure out how to play them. That's your assumption with teams that are relying on counterattacking and, and playing without the ball and playing without possession. But they seem to be so um, so efficient when they go forward and when they yeah. need to go and when, they, when, and when they're chasing uh, – not, not they were chasing a game in this case, but when they break that uh, – and we talked about Mars or I talked about Mars a few minutes ago. I, I just – I don't know. Ranieri is really good tactically. And the, the judgments that have been made about Ranieri by – People in, 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 in the Italian press and people in the French press and the people in, in the English press are all based on his work at, at big clubs that had big budgets that, at least in theory, underperformed. I don't know that Monaco really underperformed, okay? Let's just be honest about it. I don't think they did. I, and I think uh, he had them right where they needed to be when Falcao got injured that season. People forget that. They, they were within striking distance of PSG. I don't know if they would have caught him, but they were fine. Uh, and then same thing, uh, Roma, uh, there were, they, they, they were issues. But these were big clubs with big budgets. Now he is able to actually tactically put in some ideas with with players who are lower profile players, but maybe better at playing in a tactical way. Don't have to have the ball and sit deep, can break. It's a completely different kind of football, different type of players he's got. Then you bring in a guy like Inler, uh, who's a cultured midfielder, and I I think it's going to work. I really do. I, I, I had fallen into the narrative also about Ranieri before the season. Uh, and then I thought about it after these first couple of games and said, well, actually, at Monaco, if Falcao hadn't gotten hurt, he might have been OK. Well, at Juve, he just inherited a mess. At, at Roma, uh, it, it, he didn't do anything wrong there. And no. at, uh, and at uh, uh, Chelsea, well, he got them to the semifinals of the Champions League. So um, this narrative that has developed about him, I think, is, is, is probably not done him any justice. And a place to rehabilitate your image uh, image is a place like Leicester. I think the most impressive thing for me from Ranieri, when I was looking at Leicester before the season started, I thought Ulloa scored more goals than you would expect from him based on the chances that he got and the chances the team were generating. And that's why I thought Leicester was going to take a step back this year because they weren't going to be able to rely on 11 goals from him. He's a non-factor at this point. He's their first attacker off the bench. They're relying on other people. They're playing a different way. They're playing through different people. And so that's what I think is so impressive is that people want to say that there's this connection between the team that played so well at the end of last year and the team that's succeeding now. And there definitely is a connection. But there are subtle differences that Ranieri has instilled that already are putting his fingerprints on this team. Um, Let's, Kartik, you mentioned PSG, you mentioned Roma. Both of those teams were in action this weekend. When we come back, we're going to do our rundown of Europe, then talk about the remaining matches from this weekend, and then really focus on the Monday game, Arsenal hosting Liverpool. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Welcome back, listeners. Got to admit, the three of us missed you, but perhaps not as much as we missed European soccer this summer. Thankfully mm-hmm. for us, the final two big European leagues got underway this weekend. In Spain, the European champions kicked off their season with a bit of revenge, recovering from their 4-0 loss at Bilbao during the Spanish Super Cup to post a 1-0 win over Athletic Club on Sunday at San Mamés. Barcelona immediately jumps to the top of the standings. One team that can't say the same, Real Madrid, 
perhaps predictably starting the Rafa Benitez era with a nil-nil draw at newly promoted Sporting Cube. Mm-hmm. Atletico Madrid scored a one nothing victory on Saturday. In Germany, a 10-man Bayern needed a late goal for Robert Lewandowski to take a 2-1 win at Hoffenheim, while Borussia Dortmund posted their second straight 4-0 win, this time at newly promoted English. Top of the table! Yep, eight, eight goals, none allowed so far. BVB looks like they're ready to challenge Bayern. In Italy... The makeover Juventus had this summer resulted in a shock loss to open the season. Udinese claiming a 1-0 win in turn over Juventus, while Roma on Saturday stumbled themselves a 1-1 draw at Verona. And in France, here we go again. PSG plays a game. PSG wins 1-0, this time Friday at Montpellier. <laughs> they are the only perfect team in league on through three rounds, with the curious trio of Bastia, Angers, and Nantes right behind them. And one correction from last week, everybody. I mentioned last week during our France rundown that four games had uh, finished 0-0. No, they finished 1-0. That was just me writing something down incorrectly. Apologies for that. Uh, speaking of incorrect, it's time for me and the rest of us to give our top fours of the week. This is where we list our top four teams on current form and how we think the standings are going to look at the top of the table at the end of the season. Lawrence drew the short straw this week, and he gets to go for it first. Lawrence. Or the, the long straw. Um, I'm get, Obviously, I'm going to have to tabletop uh, with City. Uh, very impressive. Um, they're building what I imagine the kind of team I would build on Pro Evolution Soccer, if I was to play that right now. Um, I'll, I'm going to... Uh, who do you go just behind that? Palace, Chelsea, just making it inside my top four. I don't really need to explain either of those. Just making it inside my top four, because I don't think they'll make it again there ever this season. Uh, jokingly, Sunderland. Uh, well done on struggling to a one-all. Um, just before the weekend, Dick Alcott <laughs> basically saying... Um, I, I will not be told by Jermaine Defoe where to play him. He'll play on either wing if I want him to. And then Jermaine Defoe showing why he is supposed to play in the centre. Um, it, was, it wasn't a great performance from Sunderland, but it was, I mean, it, it's a real step forward for that, that, them as a side. Yeah, um, it was not a great performance. Draw, even at home, but even to draw at home to Swansea, who in previous weeks had looked fantastic. I guess it's progress um, for them. It is. Um, and I think, you know, Jermaine Defoe... Uh, and getting the assist from uh, Jermaine is a fan. It, it, for me, it's worth at least acknowledging. Maybe it's a regression for Swansea. The, I like the Jermaine to Jermaine connection. That they Sorry. Have yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. And Lawrence, your top four at the end of the season, as of now. Uh, City, Chelsea, Arsenal, Liverpool. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. Well, my top four at the end of the season is the same one it's been uh, ever since last week, so... Yeah, it's the same as last week. Uh, City, Chelsea, United, and Arsenal. But right now on form, it's definitely got to be City. I'm not going to harm Swansea too much because it's just one of those games that happen. You dominate a game. Sometimes you just have some bad luck. They really did uh, have the best chances in that game. I think Leicester deserves to be in this group. And just by process of elimination, because nobody else is really impressing, I'm still putting Manchester United here in the top four. But I really, really wish Liverpool would have a convincing performance so that I can put them in this group. Kartik, how about you? I'm really excited about VVB, by the way, when you did that read. I'm sorry, Richard, I had to jump in. Yeah, we could tell. Uh, they, 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 look, they look like they oh, did a few years ago. They're the most entertaining car. team in Europe right now. Yeah, and uh, mm-hmm. maybe they can push Bayern. I think we, all of us who are neutrals hope for that. Uh, and Mkhitaryan and, and, and Abiyamayan are playing like we expect them to I play. Was, so, I, was, um, I was like 
emotive on my Twitter feed during their first game, just saying, oh, Marco Royce, he's the most underappreciated player, and Obama Young now, and look at Mkhitaryan, and Kagawa's back, and Ilke. Kagawa's back, yeah. Yeah, and I was I was just so effusive that um, I wouldn't blame people for thinking I was drunk, but I was sober as hell. I was just so excited about that result. What about AC yeah. Milan, though, eh? What the hell's going on there? <laughs> the same thing that always <laughs> seems to be going on, I suppose. A couple um, years see, of this now. I, I, like the, I like the Adriano acquisition. Uh, yeah, I, I'm just disappointed with... Um, with the way that they're playing Suso. Mm. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you have a you have a soft spot for him. We know that. Yeah. We remember that. A justified um, one too. He had he had legitimate flashes. Yes, he did. Uh, so my uh, yeah, at the time I thought he and Sterling were kind of comparable players. Uh, obviously, uh, one is kicked on and one didn't. Maybe that was just bad luck uh, mm. for Suso. But uh, my my top four currently are City, Leicester. Palace and Chelsea, or actually, I guess I'll put Palace. Yeah, yeah, that order. That's my top four right now. And then my top four thing in the season still are Chelsea, City, Arsenal, and maybe they get the benefit of not having played yet this week. I'm going to knock United out of there and put Liverpool in there. And it has nothing to do with results this week. It has to do with the news that Danny Sturridge will be back in a couple of weeks. And I think yeah. that that changes things dramatically uh, if, if he actually is fit this at yeah. The, yeah, at least for a week. I think we all hope that he's fit. And six, success on the field, whatever, against your team, not against your team. Let's just hope he can stay healthy because it really does seem like a chronic thing with him. Uh, gentlemen, let's move on to talk about some matches. I want to start with the Canaries, who seem to be developing this pattern, Lawrence, of playing really well, but not actually getting results. Uh, this weekend, gave up gave up the goal that we talked about, Shakiri to Doof. Uh, end up getting a 1-1, a uh, but they need to at some point translate their actual quality into three points instead of one. Uh, are we talking about quality or just the likability of the way that they're playing their football? Because I think there's there's mm. a distinction you got to make there. Mm. Because people were saying today, uh, oh, you know, I, 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 you know, we want them to stay up because they play likable football. Mm. Um, are we are we mis mistransposing quality and 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 the end product there? Hmm, I think I resent this notion that I can't separate the two. No, I I don't. I know you're not saying that. Uh, I think it's possible. I think maybe the broader broader discussion is I I, like we've talked about before on the show. You look at their players. You look at not only the way they play, but how they are playing quality wise relative to their competition. You see a team that should finish. I I don't know, maybe anywhere between tenth, thirteenth. But you need some wins in order to get to that point. No, good point. Exactly, and and I, I think. A lot of people have the faith in Norwich that they will get those wins because if you look at their starting eleven, then they have some players in there that, uh, apart from Cameron Jerome, who who look like they're going to mm. consistently perform at a, a high basis for um, for for them this season. And also, it's the fact they got such a great result against a side who have looked so convincing over the last few weeks. I think the problem is switch, like you say, snatching those, switching those ones to threes is is the big thing because you know if they don't get enough points, they, they don't stay up and yeah. they need to get wins against these guys. That's the way it still works in this league. Kartik, I want to talk to you about Sunderland. Six pointer. I want to talk, yeah. Every every match is a six point. Kartik, yeah. Sunderland and Swansea. To me, this match deceived on two levels. Sunderland got a victory, got a, got a point. Congratulations for them. Maybe turn the tide. They. They really were bad for most of this match. Swansea had most of the best chances. But then Swansea, if they really are this team that I think they are, they have to be getting three in these games instead of one, and not because of some kind of Norwich thing where they need to convert in, to, in order to stay up. It's because Swansea, if they really are going to push on, need to force Sunderland to do more to defend their home than what they had to do on Sunday, Saturday. I was just thinking about this. They have Ayu, they have uh, Bonifemi Gomes, and for those who I don't think we've ever mentioned this on a pod, uh, Richard and I spent uh, an hour 
or, or more on New Year's Eve a, about six years ago on the phone talking about how good Gomez was for Leon. Remember that? Mm-hmm. I think it was. I think it was New Year for me. You were on the West Coast. It wasn't your New Year it, yet. But, yeah, in fairness, uh, I was hammered though. You guys yeah, are kinda, crazy. Uh, what a great I, New Year's I, I Eve you guys had. Too. I think I kind of was. Uh, Do you ever but, just call your yeah, friends but, and talk about? But, oh, it was, it was so much better you. than a typical New Year's Eve, really. To be honest with you, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, Arctic, yeah. I love you. New Year's, New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve is not my favorite holiday, uh, or even even a holiday. I we, like the next day when we have some good football. We on, talked but, about promotion relegation for hours. Yeah. Uh, now that that's what we should get uh that get some of our friends in the US excited since that seems to be all they think about. But um guys, that's no, where rabble.tv talk- come in. Um you know, they'd have really helped us in in those days, right? They would have helped us. This is like 2009, but yeah, dude, I called him on a rotary phone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was back in the day when Leon was still making deep champions on so. Hmm. Yeah, it was uh many of you weren't born yet, obviously. But we were talking about him uh, uh, six years ago, however long ago that was, IU has been such a good player in the French League. They got John Joe Shelby, who I think we know is an absolutely talented player. They got Sigurdsson back. The team, before we would always talk about this plucky group of overachievers with, with Swansea that played nice football, now you actually look at their squad, and they should be really good. And yep. this is a... Uh, this is the kind of result that uh, that that reminds you that they're Swansea because yeah. it, it just uh, they didn't take advantage of their chances, they didn't take advantage of their superiority, and uh, and Sunderland got one at the end. So it's I, I look at this as a bad result for uh, for Swansea. And with Dick Advocat, he said on Friday every player is for sale. I don't know how long how much longer he's going to stay in this job. It's really a shame for one of the great managers in European football over the course of the last twenty years to, to go out this way. The one result we haven't talked about, Southampton, nil-nil at Watford. Ronald Koeman changes his formation, goes with three at the back, two fullbacks playing as wingbacks, two defensive midfielders. Go figure, it ended up nil-nil. Uh, interesting change there. Uh, yes. gen- gentlemen, I'm skipping over that result because I want to spend as much time as par- possible talking about the game that's going to happen later today as people are listening. Arsenal, Liverpool. Lawrence, I want to start with you on this because this is very interesting to me because these are obviously two highly skilled very talented teams, particularly in attacking talent, but two teams that are ever more comfortable playing on the back foot. We haven't seen that that much this year from Arsenal yet, but it seems to be Liverpool's modus operandi at this point. And in that way, they're two teams that maybe defy at least stylistic expectations. Uh, yeah, good point. And then how do you match those two guys up, right? Yeah, who's going to take which role? Yeah, exactly. Because it's almost if they they look for the other one to do so. Although over the last few years, we found that Arsenal have been more aggressive towards Liverpool. And it's it's tended to have worked because they've had the likes of Olivier Giroud um, and strikers in there who have probably got the better of Liverpool's maybe more naive backline. Now that backline is looking a little bit more solid. I wonder how Arsenal are going to look to play that. Will they look to get at? And I think it would be interesting here is are they going to go down the Nathaniel Klein um, strength route, but then they've mm-hmm. got Skirtle just behind that. Are they going to go to get that at that side of the defence, or are they going to go for the soft underbelly of Gomez and possibly? Um, well, it probably won't be Sacco, so it, it's probably going to be uh, Lovren. And, and yeah. so, are they going to go for that side of the defence? And that's probably the more likely side. But then you see James Milner sitting in front of that. So Liverpool do have a, a unit back there, which is for the first time maybe tested. Um, comprehensively for 90 minutes by a side and not just say for a little while by Bournemouth or maybe the previous week by Stoke. Um, 
and I think that for that reason, they're, they're gonna. It's gonna be interesting to see how Liverpool use Benteke um, as an outlet in this match uh, for long balls, for getting the ball away in general, for holding it up to wait for the likes of Coutinho, maybe even Firmino get up there, mm-hmm. and even more critically, I think for Liverpool in this, they probably won't have Jordan Henderson. So, who's going to be sitting at the bed of that midfield, chin, chin, which chin. is not. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, who can Got can it. can? So will will they? Will we see the best out of him, or will we see uh, basically a guy running around like a headless chicken? And I'll be interested to see w- what goes on with um, with Chan because he has the potential to run that midfield for Liverpool, but against such a strong and I mean such a strong Arsenal midfield, mm. it's going to be difficult for him to play his best football because at times, especially against midfields that push, he looks very leggy. Kartik, let's talk about Arsenal for a second because um, I I think there's so much that Lawrence Lawrence mentioned to talk about, which is why I wanted to make extra time for this game. But the one thing that he brought up were the fullbacks and for Liverpool, Klein and Gomez. And we've seen Sanchez lining up at the on the left for the most part for Arsenal this year. But if they flip him over to the right, all of a sudden you have one of the most dangerous wide players in this league going up against one of the most inexperienced fullbacks in this league. I think it's just a good example of the kind of versatility that Arsenal has in that attacking four. Yeah, that that's a potential mismatch. I think we're talking about uh, the central midfield for Liverpool. Sean uh, a decent ball winner, but he's not great. He, he's more uh, a player that that that, uh, uh, that you want kind of just dictating tempo and, and such. Uh, James Milner, I can tell you from watching him for several years, he has so many qualities as a footballer. Tackling is not one of them. Mm. Um, he's, he's kind of he usually positionally very good, but he's not he's not a guy that's a ball winner. I mean, you need we 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 almost as Man City always have to have a Gareth Barry or De Jong if if uh, Milner was going to play in the middle. So that's um, that's an issue when you're playing a team like Arsenal, which has uh, Aaron Ramsey who, who moves a lot, who, who who it's difficult to keep uh, to track. When you have Ozil, when you have Sanchez, who you could push out wide, uh, you have. Uh, these sorts of players, Santi Corzola. I, I just look at Arsenal's midfield, and it's uh, uh, obviously we don't know if they're going to get goals from the striker position. Uh, Giroud is 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 a very good striker, but they need something more up there. But I just think I look at this matchup at the Emirates, and I think Liverpool still seems like an unsettled team. They still seem like a side that doesn't have uh, necessarily the understanding uh, uh, in in that team that they need when going up in a big match like this against a team. That hasn't changed at all. Uh, sometimes complacency is good. I know there uh, the, the the temptation. Maybe people will be chanting at the Emirates. Uh, Ever, uh, Arsenal fans spend, 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 goading Wenger, Wenger to spend money this last week. But uh, there is a reason why he's stood pat thus far this summer. This team is very, very good. They they are missing some things, right? They're not yet at Chelsea or Manchester City's level. But uh, I I think uh, this is going to be. I, I would be very surprised if Liverpool's competitive game, quite frankly. Well, yeah, that's that's the worry here, isn't it, Richard? Is is yeah. Liverpool being competitive? And you know, a lot of people expect that marauding football that they saw just a few seasons ago, but that seems less and less likely right now. But the I mean, the weird thing is, you know, we've seen other sides in in Europe playing it so well, and you wonder what is holding Liverpool back from playing that? Is it just the lack of a Luis Suarez? Because they still have players in there who are able to play very progressive football. But there are other sides in Europe this weekend, and you know we've seen two of them, Marseille and um, and BVB, uh, unload on another team. Why aren't Liverpool still playing that aggressive style of football? When storage is fit again, which I mentioned in the last segment, I, I think it might change, and I still hold out pretty high hopes for Liverpool because I think if he is actually fit, 
the, the entire style, the way Rodgers wants to play involves having a player like him uh, in an advanced position. Right now, they don't have that player. I, I know you, uh, Liverpool has eight strikers or however many, but they don't have another guy with Sturridge's uh, uh, qualities, especially to play that kind of attacking style. And I'm not even sure if that attacking style would be advantageous on Monday. I think long-term, it's something that Rodgers seems to have kind of hung his hat on, and it's a part of his DNA. But when you have somebody like Christian Benteke that has given Arsenal the kind of fits he has in the past, and you kind of don't want to play a like-for-like with an Arsenal team that's going to beat you in that like-for-like, we want to control, we want to press, we want to um, dictate the tempo of this game, it might be better for Liverpool to break out the same game plan they used at the Britannia and hope that Benteke or a Felipe Coutinho 25-yard bomb can steal them three points at the Emirates. I just don't think that Liverpool fans see that as good enough because... Uh, they they don't they, they just don't feel as much satisfaction in that I guess yeah, um, where Liverpool where Liverpool drew their satisfaction from a few seasons ago was the fact they not only did they play good football but they also managed to get the win and uh, you know they I, I you know you you have to you know make your bed and sleep in it or have your cake and eat it whatever you want to say but Liverpool fans are not really happy with what's going on at the moment because they're incredibly bored by some of this football. Well, I suppose that's understandable, but Luis Suarez is a pretty unique player, so maybe there needs to be a bit of an adjustment of expectations, but also a, given some time to uh, to grow into that, so to speak. There's still some excitement. There's still some exciting players in there. Yeah, you know? I mean, and with Sturge Liverpool coming got, back, it, it could really get back for, to that for level. Me, will Firmino play? That's going to be interesting to see. Because um, yeah. if he does, yeah. I, I wonder. Yeah. There's some excitement there, um, and, and whether he'll cope against you know the, the the big the big back line of Arsenal. Um speaking of big back lines or speaking of matchups with forwards and back lines Kartik, this is one of the few games where I would actually start Walcott over Giroud just because I like Walcott more in the matchup against Lovren and Skirtle than I do Giroud. Yeah, is Walcott fit? Uh I, I should be. Remind fit. me. I think I think I think he's fit. Yeah. I, I agree with that. This is a game where if Welbeck were fit, I would actually probably start him. Uh, but we talked about him earlier relative to Manchester United. But I, I agree with that. I think this is a game. And look, Giroud is a warrior right now for uh, Arsenal. He has had to play so many games at such a high level over the course of the last few seasons because there's been no one else uh, up top. And, and uh, uh, Welbeck gave him a little bit of that, 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 that spell last year, uh, which was good. I, I think this is a game where Walcott could just drag uh, Liverpool's center, central defense completely out of position. You're right about that, Richard. And the other thing I mentioned again is that there's a soft underbelly in midfield. Um, Lawrence, is there any possibility we could see a Lucas uh, ever again in this team? Because th- this would be the kind of game you would want to play him in. Uh, yeah, I, I, although that goes against uh, Rogers' principles, right? But uh, this is the kind of game I, I, I would throw him in in. Well, uh, yeah, but the, there's a question over whether Lucas will play again for Liverpool, uh, allegedly because he may fall out with Brendan Rodgers, but also because um, why would you not favour Chan over Lucas there? Because Chan p- probably is able to do the job that a lot of people feel Lucas can do right now at Liverpool. Um, and I, I, I think there is a lot of goodwill towards him, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they want him in the side. Um, I, I, I still think I'd rather see Chan tried in that midfield and Liverpool fail at that. Then Liverpool try and still fail at it, if that makes sense. Um, I, I what I do think is interesting is I would play Walcott and Giroud, um, and and let Walcott play against the likes of Gomez and Lovren. But then you, but let, then you take someone out of that midfield. What that? But that's my point is that I, I think if if you're playing someone like Giroud, you, basically a dominant striker against that Liverpool backline, that's that's a carnage for Liverpool. 
you know they just can't cope yeah. against big guys who control like that um and it, it you know that that is i think where arsenal then will be that savvy to kind of let him let him go at that liverpool backline well, subtly, it's a very yeah. important game for both teams because there's a fragility yeah. with both sides. Liverpool has gotten by with two decent performances, but nobody really knows how good this team is or how they're going to react when they go up against another good team. And I think we all agree that Arsenal is a very good team, but they're aspiring to even higher standards this year. And another trip up at home and to Liverpool, that would be very telling. And I think those people calling for Arsene Wenger to spend are going to get a little bit louder if they don't deliver three. If Arsene Wenger can't deliver three points on Monday. But gentlemen, we've got a whole week after that before we're going to be coming back with another podcast we've got midweek action in champions and europa league wildfires and then we've got another full slate of games coming up this weekend but until then for lawrence mckenna i'm richard farley kartik enjoy your football the world soccer talk podcast is produced by christopher harris and richard farley and is a production of worldsoccertalk.com for more information on the show Check us out at worldsoccertalk.com or subscribe through our iTunes feed. You can follow World Soccer Talk on Twitter at World Soccer Talk or follow the show's hosts. Lawrence McKenna is at Lawscast. Kartik Krishnar is at KKFLA737. And I'm at Richard Farley. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.